0: What was this episode called? Remorse. Was it? Regret.
1: I don't know. Repossess. I don't know. It's something. Here, I'll go check it out. Regina George. (laughs) Get in, loser. We're watching us for you.
0: Welcome to SVU Pod Especially Heinous. I'm Tasha. I'm Gabe. And we are on season one, episode 20.
1: Remorse.
0: Remorse. I liked this episode.
1: Yeah, it was good. I was it had some crazy I don't know. It was the twist was nuts. I was like, wait, what?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it worked out great. It did. For my chaser. But
1: <laughs> Oh really? Oh I'm excited.
0: Yeah, because I was like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? And then at the end they were like, here you go. <laughs> So we open with a cutie patootie little reporter on the street with a microphone. She looks really
1: familiar and I can't remember what she's from.
0: I know. Oh, my God. There was another person in this episode that looked really familiar and I'm going to have to look him up because I'm wildly attracted to him. So she's got this The
1: fucking bomb oh guy. Oh,
0: my God. I know.
1: Okay. He was delicious. I know. We're not even there. Let's Yeah, not... we can't even say the bomb stuff yet. There's a super hot guy and I know who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I even saw Stabler like once in this episode because I was just like, who the f-
0: fuck is bomb squad over here (laughs) oh man so she's got this cute little reporter voice she's doing a segment so she's Mm -hmm. like walking down the street looking to camera she's got her microphone and she's like I'm Sarah Logan you've seen me interviewing other people telling their stories I'm not very good in the first person but here goes Mm -hmm. and then she tells the story of walking home after an assignment it didn't get finished until after midnight so she's walking by herself she was attacked outside of this community pool that she was drugged into and was raped by two men Mm -hmm. like in the vacant pool area so we still see the news segment happening it continues with like her story but now we see it instead of from the camera's perspective we see it on a tv in a hotel room there's a shower running a short-haired blonde in her underwear is smoking and watching this news segment Mm -hmm. sarah logan continues on the tv and says two men one wore a running suit the other had a tattoo of an eye on the inside of his wrist and smelled like clove cigarettes oh shit
1: yeah the lady's like starts getting like nervous and was like obviously the dude is in there
0: she looks super worried. We're, we're immediately like, yeah, that, that's the dude in the shower. Mm-hmm. And she picks up the phone. And she's like, hello, operator. She whispers it, yeah, operator. And, and I'm then, like, what does that even mean? Is, did you immediately get a person when you picked up the phone? Or I guess maybe in a hotel.
1: hotel. Yeah, I don't know why you should call him operator, but. Hello, operator. <laughs> and they're like, it's the front desk, you idiot. <laughs> she's like, You're I have an emergency. Don't you remember asking for a box fan 20 minutes ago? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's me. Every hotel I go to. Anyways, this big hand with the tattoo on the wrist grabs the phone and he's like, hey, sweetie.
0: Yeah. Now's
1: not the time for a fucking phone call. And then they start doing it and she's all like.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but it's like she doesn't want to start doing it. It seems like he's the scene that I'm watching is one of him like forcing himself on her. And she. She just looks
1: scared. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All of a sudden, Benson and Stabes are talking to this lady. They're out in the hallway now of the hotel. So she must have been able to sneak away or whatever. Like, it wasn't really clear. Maybe the front desk operator called, (laughs) you know, SVU. Who knows? She...
1: Nameless woman number one.
0: Yes. Yeah. We find out the dude's name. We haven't seen his face yet, but his name is Mark Krieger. He told this woman that he's a car parts rep from Cleveland. She was business trip hooking up with the dude, called it an expense account yeah. She told Benson and Stabler that she didn't want to press charges, but she wanted to help. So she gives them the key and they head into the room. Benson and Stabler walk in, guns drawn, and this guy is hard barfing into the toilet in his mm-hmm. tidy whiteies. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, like he's really got his head in that bowl. Yeah. They place him under arrest for rape and he acts not surprised and
1: he's like, Excuse me. Bro. Yeah. <laughs> well, Stabler's got his hands behind his back. Yeah. Excuse me. Blah, <laughs> blah, <laughs> blah, <laughs> blah. Benson's like, bye. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then we go to the precinct and Munch, fuck it. (sighs) Can we talk about the bullpen and the squad
0: room situation? Yeah, if you want. So I get a text the other day from Gabe and she's like, Squad room! Oh my God, yes, that's what it's called. We've been trying to figure it out. So we just started calling it the bullpen. But then we also felt like bullpen did apply. But it's funny because bullpen applies more to the newsroom that Mm -hmm. we couldn't think of what the name of it was. Mm -hmm. And you said bullpen as a joke. Yeah. And it was correct. Also, Also, the name of the newspaper where Clark Kent worked at was called the Daily Planet. Mm
1: -hmm. I get a text. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, Daily Planet. I'm like, oh, my fucking God. (laughs) Throughout the precinct, Munch shows up. He's, He's like, oh, we've been looking for these two dudes for three months. And it happens to be right when I'm in the middle of a Chomsky lecture. And I was like, fuck you, Munch.
0: (laughs) I can't with Munch this episode.
1: Yeah, okay, yeah.
0: Okay, we're going to give Munch a break this episode. We're not monsters. But I didn't know about all the
1: stuff before this. Okay, so yeah, when he
0: came in and he's like, fucking Chomsky, I'm like, fuck. (laughs) <laughs> Dude, I need to let everybody know that I was at a Noam Chomsky lecture. Yeah.
1: So Stabler tells the team that Krieger works in construction and not as an actual car parts salesman. He has priors, including possession assaults stemming mostly from bar fights and kiting checks. Benson tells them that he's actually from Queens and not from Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Benson tells them that he lawyered up immediately. And after Munch tells them that he always thought it was a crime of opportunity so then Craigan comes in and he informs them that they that they may end up having to file Krieger and an unapprehended other. But he wants to find the other guy before Krieger gives him a heads up, right? The second rapist. So Kr- Craigan's like, check phone records, employment records, credit card bills, find the other guy. And then when the meeting breaks up, Munch says, has anybody told Sarah Logan that they may have found one of her rapists? And Kragan was like, no, we thought maybe you should. Mm hmm.
0: They're establishing that Munch has a relationship with this woman. Yeah, yeah. That he's been working with her, and that you know right. she's gonna like that she trusts him, and that he's that's the why one he has the him. case and stuff, and that's why yeah. we're being nice to him.
1: Yeah. Munch is at Sarah's office. She asks him, she's like, hey, did you see my piece on the news? And he tells her that it took guts to do that, which it totally did. Putting yourself out there like that and telling the whole fucking world you got rapes. Mm -hmm. And your rapist now knows who you are and knows that you're after him. Yeah. Or them. And she's like, who is this guy? Who is it? And he's like, I can't tell you because it's going to jeopardize the lineup. And he's like, after this whole dance is over. I'll tell you his credit report, everything.
0: Yeah. And in this conversation, I've seen this before. Like Munch seems a little flirty Mm -hmm. and she seems a little like I'm going to keep being really nice, even though it's really, really subtle. So I don't know if it was intentional, but if it was, this next line makes a, a lot of sense to me. Oh, you remind me so much of my brother. Like, that's what you say to a guy you want to be nice to, but you also want him to
1: know you're not interested. Right. According to Munch's smile, it looked like he took it the way that it was not intended. Like, <laughs> oh, we're that close? <laughs> you want to take a bath together? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Munch tells her that she probably won't see the guy again until court. Mm -hmm. And everything up to that is like in anticipation for the defense. Yeah. And she says, Oh, so it's the business side of innocent until proven guilty. I wouldn't have it any other way. And I was like, Boss.
0: So Jeffries and Munch are at Mark Krieger's apartment and they're going through all of his shit. He has collections all over him, no bank account, no credit card. He doesn't show any signs of hobbies. I love that Jeffries was like, He doesn't have any golf clubs. (laughs) Yeah. Me neither. <laughs> Where's all his croquet stuff? <laughs> <laughs> he has a huge collection of ashtrays from hotels and bars and shit. She's like, every relationship is short term and every friendship expendable. Mm-hmm. So this thought makes them think that maybe he didn't know the other guys super well, like they had originally thought. Yeah. He may have just been somebody that Krieger met.
1: And they were kind of thinking that maybe these ashtrays were like souvenirs of women. Mm-hmm. Maybe
0: like, what do they call them?
1: Fuck, this is like the last time I, remember. I can't remember the name of it. When you collect something. Trophies. Trophies. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So they're at the precinct. They've got all these ashtrays sitting there and Craigan is getting nostalgic over the different bars that these ashtrays are from Mm -hmm. because Cragen is a recovering alcoholic and Mm -hmm. they bring like the jokey aspect of that in here. He knows off the top of his head that the attack was closest to Shad's cabaret. Mm -hmm. There is no Shad and there is no cabaret, just a bunch of hard drinking locals and confused out of towners.
1: And he like kind of like looks like forlorn, like, oh, not forlorn, but like- Nostalgic. Nostalgic, yeah. Back in my day. I was one of those fucks.
0: <laughs> so Jeffrey's got a lead by cold calling a dude that told her that he knew Krieger and she told that dude that she was a friend of his. And he's like, all right, come over, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So much in Jeffries go to this guy's apartment. His and there's PK. Fun fact, this actor reappears in an episode in 2018 as a different dude. Hmm. So SVU is notorious for reusing actors. Multiple actors that have become main cast have played victims or perps in prior episodes. One of the ADAs. Yeah. 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 So
1: this guy- She like rapes a dude with like two other chicks and then- <laughs> couple seasons later, she's like, let's toss him in the clinker." <laughs> You're like, whoa. They're like, you
0: look familiar. And she's like, nope. Mm-mm. So anyway, my first impression of this guy, PK is a dopey looking dude. And I'm guessing he's really into the Foo Fighters. Yeah. Um, He's sort of related to Krieger, he says. They're like cousins or something. My mom explained it to me once. Um, and he says he's not surprised that Krieger is a part of a rape investigation because Krieger is very impulsive. He hasn't seen him since some dumb sounding Monsters of Metal Music Fest. On Labor Day or something like that. Oh, yeah. remember shows?
1: Mm. Sounds familiar.
0: I don't miss festivals. No. I don't miss music festivals. Coachella is a young person's game. For some reason, when I was 18 years old, like navigating mud pits and paying $18 for a burrito when it's 900 degrees out seemed like a really good idea. And now I'm just like, ugh, are there seats there? Because then I'll go.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I remember I was 25 when I had my first sit down concert. It was fucking blues travelers. (laughs) At the Barrymore. They were already at way not famous anymore. Yeah, And it was a sit-down thing, and I, w- I sat down, and I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to sit down. And I was like, fuck, this is nice. I was like, look at all those harmonicas. <laughs> so, so yeah, Krieger's always getting into trouble, and he was very impulsive. He said that Mark had paged him a few times that night. Mm-hmm.
0: Cut to Benson and Stabler mid-questioning with bartender Jerry Seinfeld's neighbor Newman. Oh, my God. Yeah. I he thought he looked, looked like... I thought it was him for a second.
1: Yeah. He looked like him and the penguin mixed together. Yeah. I kind of liked him.
0: I kind of liked him too, especially because like we cut to it and he's like, oh yeah, that guy owes me 36 bucks. Yeah. (laughs) Like he is hot over that 36 bucks. Yeah. Stabler wants an itemized bill to determine if he was with a man or a woman because men drink Boilermakers and women drink Long Island iced teas. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even going to unpack all of that bullshit, but it's bullshit. Yeah. So- The bill isn't itemized, so he can't get that information, but the date was January 11th.
1: They did it twice already so far, like the first 90 minutes. She's like, where's his golf clubs?
0: Yeah, I thought this throughout this entire episode. I'm so glad that you brought that up. The layers of our internalized misogyny, it's Mm -hmm. like even if you are consciously and actively working against that way of thinking, it's going to just seep into you. Like all of these little things, like that's all
1: just passed off as normal. From the second you're Uh, born and somebody puts like a big pink bow in your hair Yeah. or a little baseball shirt or whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Whatever the fuck. I mean, it's- You're assigned
0: this color and you're assigned
1: this color. Yeah, everybody's like- well, my parents didn't raise me to be that. I'm like, you're only with your parents for like a small amount of time. Yeah. And then you go out and you're, and it's socialization. Socialization. Right. Socialization just pounded on you. You know what I mean? hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like your parents might not be racist, but you are. But the rest of the fucking, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, what's that study that lady did with the children with the blue eyes and the brown eyes? Like,
0: oh, how they would group themselves?
1: Yeah. It's yeah. like, that it's socialization it's not just your parents yeah this is why I fucking love Gen Z so much because they're just like this genderless fucking like Mm -hmm.
0: okay so Munch and Sarah walk into the room while she'll be choosing from the lineup lawyer intros are made ADA Erica Alden will be representing Sarah's case and Robert Sorensen is Krieger's attorney and he seems douchey Mm -hmm. so the lineup files in and she says she didn't get a good look at his face so she asks to have them roll up their sleeves thinking the tattoo will be a tell (gasps) they all have it they all have it
1: and they all look like shit
0: and, she, <laughs> and she's like is this a joke um yeah it's hilarious they're, they're like ha, gotcha
1: bunch so i'm of like it's dropped that... from the ceiling and confetti yeah the <laughs> camera crew comes out and they're like oh anyway all right you can pick him you get he's in there this is a lineup for her rape okay
0: <laughs> But I'm just like, is that a thing that they do? Because that's a distinguishing marker on somebody. So like, would they? I, I've just never heard of them doing something like that. So is that like a TV thing that they did? Or is that?
1: Or they got the lineup because the dudes that had the tattoo. But that's got to be, that's real specific. to Dude, find. they had
0: to have drawn that on. Yeah. They, I don't know. Those are like, they had temporary tattoos made. very
1: specific.
0: They have a henna artist
1: on retainer. <laughs> it looked like ballpoint pen. Yeah. They, well, it was. Yeah.
0: So, anyway, she's super nervous, but she whew, chooses the right guy. Yeah, who I thought for a second, I was like, did I not clock that? That's Sam Rockwell, and it, it's not.
1: Oh yeah, but he
0: like in that <laughs> moment I love Sam Rockwell. Same, but I got really excited when they filed in, and I was like, oh, is it Sam Rockwell? And no, it wasn't. Have but I seen- can.
1: Have you seen Moon? No. Okay, watch it. So Munch escorts her from the lineup, and he's like, "I can finally tell you, it's Mark Krieger. He's a construction dude from Queens." And they had interrogated Krieger, but he didn't talk. She asks him if they can make a deal with him to give up the other rapists. So Munch just says that Krieger's lawyer won't let the cops talk to him. And I'm like, wouldn't they
0: want to make a deal? Yeah, you'd think so, you know. But, but
1: maybe they don't need to because they don't have the second guy, and there's not enough.
0: So they might know that. So already. they might just
1: like be like, I don't want to make deals or not. He's going to get off, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: She's super stuck on the why of the Mm -hmm. crime and i'm sure a lot of rape
1: survivors go through this like why did they fucking target me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But Munch tells her like they may never know that. Just another scene of like him caring about her and being like really yeah. gentle and He's kind like, and her trusting him. Yeah, like,
1: And like here's the truth. Like we may not find the second guy. Mm-hmm. and You may not know why. Yeah. Like the excuse because she, she was like well maybe it was like they were abused when they were children. Maybe this maybe that. And he was like that's the stuff that rapists tell psychiatrists and judges after they've been caught.
0: Mm-hmm. He's, like, Just and journalists. B-. Yeah. Yeah. Like her.
1: And she was like well you've never like steered me wrong before so
0: yeah so then they have a team meeting in the squad room. I started calling it the squad room after you were like, this is what it is. I'm like, okay. Even though yeah. I've gotten pretty comfortable with it being the bullpen. <laughs> we could interchange. Sure. So they're trying to figure out what they've got to move forward in prosecuting this guy. DNA, witnesses, Sarah Logan will be great on the stand. Krieger's tough to nail down because he never kept friends long enough for anyone to really know him. And then Stabler hops in and says he has a source in Rikers that says he heard something. So Staves is going to go down to meet with him. Mm-hmm. So now we're at Rikers Island. This guy This This guy is seemingly an informant to have his kids looked out for Mm. and Stabler is making that happen. So like it's a give and take relationship. So I'm assuming that if that's the case that this guy's a lifer. Yeah. Stabler's
1: Uh, like, all right, we got your daughter's teacher to cut her some slack mm. and she can do some summer school. And we're keeping an eye on this, and yeah.
0: yeah. The informant says that he heard Krieger didn't know who Sarah Logan was, that she was this news lady, so she Mm -hmm. wasn't specifically targeted. Also, that Krieger is scared that he's fully gonna go down for the crime. Mm -hmm. So that's an advantage on the prosecution's part if they're aware of that. Also, apparently the other guy was already at Rikers for some other petty shit, and Krieger found him and told him not to talk and that he would owe him one. Mm -hmm. And that's all the informant has. Like, Stabler wants... He's like, give me names. You got to have more than that. And he's like, I really don't. Like, that's all he's I like have. He's like,
1: I heard it from some dudes in the TV room. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't. I think he did know, though. I could tell by his face because he was like. Like, he... for his own. For his own safety. You can't be fucking right people out.
0: Like, if somebody this said is... something directly to his face, he's going to be like, yeah, I heard it. Yeah. You know, kind of like when you're 17 and you find a case of beer on the side of the road.
1: I had to get this out of the street so that it wouldn't hurt anybody. <laughs> And
0: then I had to drink it so that I wasn't being wasteful. The environment. So Stabler gets the computer disk. It's the year 2000. And it holds all of the prisoner info. It's thousands of inmates
1: to go through. So they're at the courthouse. ADA Alden explains fucking awesome that they gave her a name.
0: Yeah. Like the second we met her, too. Yeah.
1: ADA Alden explains to Munch that the- It's not
0: in the script at all. She insists on it. I've come up with a name, a backstory. I need this. So I'm like, just let her do it. She's getting paid two-thirds of what these other extras are getting paid. It's fine.
1: They're at the courthouse. ADA Eldon explains to Munch that the attorney Sorensen will try to rush the case to trial in order to catch them unprepared. Mm-hmm. When Munch tells her that they are ready, she reminds Munch that Sarah's not ready and that she was raped by two men. Mm-hmm. But they will only be able to show the jury one. Yeah. And that Sarah took an unusual route home. So she will try to say that was more than just a leisurely walk home.
0: Right. And there's no proof of the second guy because yeah. he wore a condom. They're going to argue that it was
1: consensual with this one dude. Yeah. So she's like Benson had a case like this that fell apart last year. Like you ask her for help. Mm -hmm. for prepping her Benson and Munch are at Sarah Logan's office Um, Benson tells Sarah that the defense can't bring up her sexual history but they can allude to it and Munch says they're gonna come for her really really harshly on the stand yeah they're gonna beat her up and that she has to explain everything in detail she has to say the correct terminology for body parts like what Mm -hmm. happened where when blah blah blah
0: speaks super matter of factly directly and specifically
1: yeah and she's like if you fucking feel uncomfortable with all those terms and stuff it's gonna show and they're gonna use that and they're gonna do anything Anything to make you like score me. So if you need to talk to me or Munch and tell your story over and over again to, so you're not uncomfortable, fucking do it. Yeah. And Munch is like, dude, it's going to be ugly. And she was like, not as ugly as what happened. Mm. And I was like, oh, I love her.
0: Yeah. So they're at the Supreme Court at the pretrial hearing. The defense is bringing a bunch of shit to the table, trying to suppress her ID and all Other kinds of counts. Mm-hmm. Fucking Krieger is sitting there like a smug fucking teenager mm-hmm. and tries to make weird eye contact with Sarah. And then you just see <laughs> Munch.
1: Munch is like, Mm-mm. Munch
0: eyeballs the shit out of him, which I liked.
1: Yeah. Do you remember in Encino Man when fucking Rudy <laughs> <laughs> or Samwise Gamgee <Gemji>, um, <laughs> waved at the cute girl and then her boyfriend's head went, and he was like, <laughs> Yes. It was like that.
0: The ADA wants to keep the press out of the courtroom, and the defense attorney is super butthurt about
1: it. Just a couple of kids wheezing the juice. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry I did that.
0: (laughs) The judge calls him out for wanting his name in print and says he'll rule on all of the shit tomorrow. So Munch and Sarah are leaving the courtroom. She was upset because she didn't know that Krieger was going to be there. And that sounds like an oversight on the part of the prosecution. Like, you need to tell a fucking rape survivor that her rapist is going to be They do in this
1: the cor- in every fucking episode. Ugh.
0: They tell her the defense would normally try to cop a plea, but this guy is super reaching by trying to use incompetence as an argument to break down their case. So, because Sarah's a public figure, They're saying that this lawyer wants to win at trial because then he'll be known and get big cases moving forward. Yeah. So she's getting fucked because people know who she is. Yeah. And Sarah's like, fuck it, fine, Munch, come on my show. We'll talk about it. And, you know, we'll put out our end. Mm -hmm. So Munch resists in a million ways until she says she'll take him to dinner after. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you're getting too close, Munch. So the plan is for him to go on at 7 p.m. that night, Wear a nice jacket and tie. This is a nice jacket and tie.
1: <laughs> Neither one of them sound that way, but I also like that <laughs> <laughs> your nails are long and you are do. You look like a mobster's wife, and you did the- we had a nice jacket and tie.
0: Oh,
1: it was cool. Thank you. I put them on
0: last night while I was typing my chaser, and I went from like typing normally to typing with my fingers spread out like. like this. And I'll skit where they're like.
1: <laughs> So they're they're at the studio, Munch is waiting. In the green room. Yeah, fixing his fucking suit and tie in the reflection. Somebody with headphones comes in and they're like, we don't know where she is. There's some crazy gridlock down by where she lives. Yeah. Then he receives a call and he's like, What? And he, he leaves and he goes to her apartment. There's a fucking firefighters. There's an ambulance that hasn't left yet. A huge crowd. A huge crowd. That's what the fucking gridlock is. He is like, I'm coming in. And they're like, no, the captain says you can't come in. And he's like, no, I'm doing it. And he's like fighting with this firefighter guy. The firefighter is like, we don't want anybody
0: else to get hurt. And Munch is like, who's hurt? Why is the ambulance still here? Yeah. Which gave me chills just again now when I said it. Mm-hmm. Because if someone was hurt, the ambulance would be gone to the hospital by now. Yeah. So he immediately is like fuck yeah
1: yeah and Benson doesn't really even have to say anything she was just like Mm -hmm. he's like Sarah and he's she's like yeah munch you know and he's like what happened the neighbors heard a blast they're up in her apartment
0: this is like so heartachey but this is where we're introduced to the cutest
1: bomb squad guy oh he was okay. fucking hot. The- you, you do this. I'm going to give him a gook. I'm yeah. going to look up his name. So the bomb squad got the call at 646 and they arrived at 652. She informs him that the six minutes would not have mattered because it was a fucking bomb. When Munch gets to her apartment, he is told it was black powder bomb in the box of flowers. She saw the flowers at her door and brought them in. And then when she opened them, she blocked the blast from the north side of the room with her body killing her instantly.
0: Mm. Hold on. I'm looking for... oh. Daniel Sanjata?
1: Mm, let me see a picture of him now. Hold on. Well, he's probably all like mature, some gray.
0: See, I knew I... Oh, Gabe. Am I going to die? You're going to die. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> like What's the it? year 2000, Daniel Sunjata was something else. But pause this right now. Google Daniel.
1: From Graceland?
0: What are, look at those lips. That's salt and pepper. Oh, my God. Give me one more minute here. There's a shirtless one. Hello. Okay. So, yeah. Google Daniel Sunjata. S-U-N-J-A-T-A. We'll give you a minute. Get on our level. (laughs) So, she died instantly. Munch is heartbroken.
1: Obviously, yeah. They're in the squad room. Munch is having a day. He goes to work the next day. Yeah, but But it's kind of... A lot of people do stuff like that because it's like... You gotta sometimes yeah
0: you keep going through your emotions to like feel normal yeah benson's still at sarah's canvassing jeffries is being super sweet and compassionate to munch Cragen comes in like all right what do we get per his informant stabler has narrowed down the six thousand dudes that it could be at rikers to 207 possibilities that fit the description and would have been out when the rape occurred mm-hmm. so now they're confused because if the rapist was a part of the bombing. It makes number two the alpha. They're like going over the psychology of it. Logan's testimony is getting admitted via Gerasi. So we find out later what Gerasi is. They want to link Krieger to the bombing because if they don't, Logan's statements aren't admissible. And if we go back to when we learned about hearsay, that's what he's referencing. So remember when we talked about hearsay and how. When Nicole Brown Simpson had died, her diary wasn't admissible because it was hearsay. Mm-hmm. So because she can't sit and testify in court, yeah. even though she gave statements, even though it's
1: just like it's just technically a rumor almost te- you know
0: in a in legal terms, yeah, yeah, so that she can't sit there and on the record say it in court, yeah, which Gerassi has something to do with that, but we'll get there in a minute, okay. Was it Stabler who said this? Krieger couldn't mastermind a church picnic. Because they thought
1: he at first he was like the mastermind. Yeah. And then they're like, no, this guy's a fucking idiot.
0: Right. And so they're like, well, the other guy must be not the tag along. Krieger's like Krieger's too, the tag along.
1: Yeah. Krieger's too like impulsive. hmm
0: So Kragen's... And- Pumping out the problem solving. He sends Munch and Jeffries to focus on the rape case. He has Benson and Stabler focused on the bombing. And he's like, don't tell Munch anything you find unless it ties Krieger oh, yeah. to it. Because if they do, then he they're obligated
1: to include him in the.
0: Yes. Yeah. So if they kind of like, it's a little shady, but it's what they're doing. Yeah. Munch and Kragen head off to Kragen's office. He offers Munch time off and Munch is like, no, I'm good. Kragan's yeah. just like being like the good dad captain.
1: Yeah. Okay, so they're at the bomb squad. I just know that they're meeting with my boyfriend. They're meeting with my boyfriend, Mr. Bomb. Mm. (laughs) Mr. Bomb Squad. Benson and Sabler are told that the bomb was made from a soup can, Chinese black powder, and a flammable liquid held together with masking tape and then wired to a remote.
0: Our cutie patootie said the easy way to rig it would have been by triggering it to the lid of the box, but instead it was by a remote, which makes it so much more complex,
1: more complex than it had to
0: be. Yeah.
1: So So it was personal, they're thinking.
0: And the guy wanted to watch her die. Yeah. So they're going to go check out the park across the street from Sarah's apartment.
1: Yeah. So Benson and Taylor are in the park. Taylor picks up a wrapper from a pile of throat lozenge. wrappers that are like on the ground. Yeah. Thinking the guy may have had a cold.
0: Or they were dropped by one of the other 8 million people in New York City. Like like, you're in a public park in fucking New York. Maybe
1: it was from you from last episode.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You can see right into her apartment from where they stand at the park. So they seem confused by the dynamic of what they're putting together for these perps. But they decide that Krieger was a last-minute tag-along because whoever did the bombing was a meticulous planner. Mm -hmm. So it had to be the second guy.
1: Yeah. So they're in the Supreme Court. Sorensen, Krieger's lawyer, asks the judge to quash the indictment since Sarah is dead. ADA Alden asks if they're allowed to use their journal's and statements to the police under Jirasi.
0: So Jirasi means that it's the defendant's fault that the testimony can't be heard. So what they have to prove first is that it's Krieger's fault that Sarah is dead. Then her statement and everything can be a part of the rape trial. So first they have to take care of this bomb shit so they can prove him guilty of that. And then they just added a whole litany of other shit to be able to get to the end of this case. Then her statement and everything can be a part of the rape trial. Then they can try him for her rape. The ADA says that it's a primo a fascia case and prima fascia means at first face or at first appearance she's saying that it would appear that krieger would have been the one to do it because he's the one with the heat on him he's mm. the
1: one with the reason to get rid of her like the most obvious and mm-hmm. first explanation is the mm-hmm. applicable one yeah so the judge tells them they have seven days to link krieger to the bombing or the indictment <gasps> will be squashed
0: right because he says that the other free suspect also benefited from her death
1: Right. The Sorensen asks for his client to be let out so he can help with his defense. And the judge sets the bail to fifty thousand or mm-hmm. at fifty thousand. Munch it's-
0: is sitting in that what is it called? The Munch bullpen?
1: In- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it's called, courtroom behind the he's, desk?
0: He's sitting in the the gallery. Is yeah, it the gallery? Probably. He's sitting in there and he jumps up and he's like, why not just declare open season on half the women in New York?
1: The judge is like, excuse me? Why'd you yeah.
0: fucking sign on my badge? And Munch is like, who's pocket are you in
1: yeah and he's like you're fine for five hundred dollars and he keeps he's like why not make it a thousand why not make it and then yeah he's like get the fuck out of here he's and like i'm gonna throw you in lockup for fucking contempt yeah and jeffries is like bro let's go get out of here like, krieger's kinda, cousin
0: paged me fucking pk paged me so we're gonna go talk to him like we're not we have shit to do yeah calm
1: down Throughout the precinct pk tells munch and jeffries he remembers a friend of krieger's from selling pot named tommy
0: He didn't tell them before because he had bought weed from him. And Jeffries is like, we deal with real crimes, you dumbass. (laughs) Nobody here gives a fuck about some pot. Yeah. He says that Tommy went to Jersey to run a gas station as a made man, quote unquote. He's Irish. So I'm like, ooh, he got a big promotion from Jack Nicholson. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen The Departed? Of course. Have you seen it 9,000 times? Have you rewound that part? Where the fucking dropkick Murphys are playing, and Leo's doing those tricep dips in fucking prison. Mm-mm. I wish we had more time today. It's hot.
1: <laughs> and then he was like, "Hey, if like you get an arrest, like will I get an, a reward?" And Munch throws him a fucking dollar and was like, "Why don't you go buy yourself a blunt?" <laughs> <laughs> so they're in the squad room and they have located eighteen men fitting their requirements of tommy tommy mcirish Mm -hmm. munch and jeffries try shad's cabaret to see if he was there drinking with krieger i hope that bartender got his 36 dollars. i know Mm. after seeing a picture of krieger and a photo array the owner picks out tommy mcconnell
0: they're at the gas station and it's the kind with no inside just plexiglass that the cashier sits inside of and the customers are outside
1: well jeffries acts like she's trying to pump gas unsuccessfully munch approaches the window complaining His wife cannot get gas and he has to be at work. And he's all like, ah! When McConaughey heads for the door, Benson, Stabler, and Munch meet him there with guns out to arrest him.
0: Tommy's in the interrogation room. He had to go to Rikers for a week because he sold weed to an undercover. And then Stabler brings up Krieger telling him to shut up. So in that tiny window of time, he was at Rikers when Krieger got there. Mm -hmm. So then Stabies starts playing games. (laughs) He tells Tommy that Krieger told them everything about that night and that he's pinning it all on Tommy. Tommy Mm. immediately is like, okay, I was there and tells Stabes the story. Also, he has a really weird accent.
1: Yeah, it's not Irish, that's for sure. No, I was
0: expecting the departed and I got snatch. (laughs) He's got like a weird- Cogni (laughs) snatch? Like he was almost like a Russian plant. (laughs) I'm like, is there another twist?
1: I seriously (laughs) imagine like a (laughs) Russian (laughs) snake plant. Like, that's what i was like he had eyeballs and everything it was just popped in my head and i was like what oh wait <laughs> so he's like we were a little high walking around i don't know how where this guy's supposed to be from this dude never got any more callbacks so they break into the empty pool. Krieger had
0: said to him, this would be the perfect place to do a bitch, to get some without the whining and the dining. Just an aside on this guy, on this character, Tommy seems like a real fucking mouth breather. Yeah. He says that Krieger pops her one and rapes her. At first, he says that he doesn't watch and Stabes is like, bam, what, you too modest all of a sudden? And he's like, it's just that he's a freak. <laughs> Yeah. And Staves is like, Where did you grow up? And he's like, South Philly. Why? No, he didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Staves, calm down. Okay.
1: Yeah. Staves was like, You're Irish hmm So you've been taught to respect
0: women. Sailor's like, your mother sounds like a good woman. Why don't you be a good son and give it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tommy's like, all right. Makana admits he did watch the rape. And he gives the details of Krieger raping Sarah Logan. hmm So- and
1: they're in their viewing room, and Jeffries is like, Krieger's bail's totally been revoked.
0: Yeah. So Jeffries and Munch go to get him, and this guy takes the fuck off, and he is fast. Yeah. But Jeffries- She's, is on his fucking tail like she's running like terminator 2 Oh my god I was yeah. going to say the T1000 Yeah Yeah like like um flat pointed finger hands you know like Palms, you don't even
1: like you're about to clap but you don't clap you just go up and down <laughs> up and down Yeah <laughs> sprinting hard krieger fucking jumps into a van and just before just before jeffries gets to him the van fucking explodes knocking her down
0: as she's yelling stop stop and she's screaming at him to stop
1: yeah oh my god munch fucking catches up and moves jeffries to safety ten-
0: and she's like well, i told him why didn't he why stop? didn't he stop
1: yeah and they call Kragen. yeah
0: yeah and i'm like hey there bomb squad <laughs> <laughs>
1: So Munch, Benson, and Stabler are they're all outside of like the where the bomb happened. Yeah. They're all in the street. There's the mm-hmm. fucking ambulance. Munch, Benson and Stabler are told that the bomb was the same as the one in Sarah's apartment. Mm hmm.
0: So they're like, maybe it was his bomb. Like maybe it just accidentally went off.
1: Yeah. And but he could have been within like fifty feet away.
0: Right. And yeah. the bomb squad was like, well, it wasn't his own bomb because it blew his dick off. And I'm like, four missing dicks. Season one. <laughs> At the end of every season, I want to do an in memoriam of missing dicks. Oh,
1: my God. Yeah. Could you like a, like a.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Like with pictures? I mean, maybe not of the dicks. Oh, that's what I was. We don't have the pictures of the dicks. We have the pictures of the perps. We can find out the dicks. Pictures of dicks. I mean, we. Let's get pictures of the perps. That's better. We can find
0: pictures of the dicks. But we're just like. Oh, you know what we could do? I'll be in do? charge of that. Okay. <laughs> you know what we could do is we could have the pictures of the perps alongside of like a composite of what we think of their dick would of look like
1: the police sketch. Like before it explodes. Like we're not yeah. sickos. Yeah. <laughs> munch checks on Jeffries uh, she's she, over with a paramedic like, yeah and she's, she's like let's go with, let's get shit going and he's like dude no like you're fucked up you just get yeah. in a thing and
0: she goes I have to stay on the job or whatever and he's like hey you got to let me watch your back and she's like I've got to watch your back it's just a nice moment where like you can see that they really care
1: about each other as partners especially after all those where she's just like ragging at him all the time because he's a piece of shit you know Well, I if, would I would argue I mean throughout the season like she's like giving him shit so then it's nice yeah. to see a thing where they're like they actually like really care about each other
0: yeah at the end of the day like they're fucking partners now
1: so he asked her to take a few days and then she's like okay and like let's and she's like for you
0: yeah and i was like "Ah, you guys it's the sweetest partner moment between any partners
1: that we've seen it really was yeah Mm -hmm. they're in the squad room Stabler tells the team that the canvas is coming up empty.
0: So this is no longer one of the rapists. SVU mm-hmm. twist. Stabler is thinking John Hinckley Jr. who tried to assassinate
1: Reagan to impress Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. They just they think that it might be a case where the guy thought he had a relationship with her and, and didn't believe that she should be talking about her rape on television. Cragen tells them to look under her correspondence after her story aired because she had all these like cards and flowers and stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: So they don't have. So, so this is
1: this, is this is even about the two dudes and the rape or anything. Yeah, this is a whole different fucking. Well, it's thing. about the rape. I shouldn't I mean, say that the two rapists weren't the bombers.
0: Yeah. Now that they don't have Sarah Logan anymore and they don't have Krieger anymore, Kragen's concerned that Tommy's gonna walk. Mm-hmm. So they need a confession from Tommy. Mm-hmm. Stabler reminds Kragen that Tommy doesn't know that Krieger's dead, and Kragen oh. goes. It's been a while since I tried the disappointed father figure. When and you I'm said like, that, I was like... <gasps> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I was like... Craiggan is in the interrogation room with Tommy. Tommy McIrish. Craiggan is intense. Yeah. He's like... He walks right over and he's like, sit up straight. And the, the guy's like... And uh, he like grabs him by the face and he's like, I know you lied. He's Your like, mother
0: and I are so disappointed <laughs> in you. Yeah.
1: And he's like, what happened that night? And he's like, come on. You know, like taps him on the face. Like, just tell me what happened. And he's doing the whole dad like being forceful but like loving.
0: Yeah. It, um or caring. It was too much. And I watched it and I was like, is that how your dad was, Craig? No wonder you're an alcoholic.
1: <laughs> So Tommy tells Kragen, he's like, okay, yeah, I held Sarah down while Craig raped her. She asks us not to hurt her. And then he admitted that he raped her next using a condom, and she's like, still crying. I even used a rubber, and she's still crying. Yeah, he thought he was being like real respectful. Yeah. Oh, again, he's just a fucking dummy. Kragen just like cocks his head and looks at to him, and then like walks out of the room. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So um, they're at Sarah's office and they're searching through her mail. Um, Munch brings up the powder used in making bombs. He's been and realizes that they can test for the powder residue at the bomb squad place, so they all drop the mail and take it to the lab. I would make an excuse to go there, too. Yeah, I In know. her defense. She's like, oh, wait, I bet you they can do this in his bedroom.
0: <laughs> they're at the bomb squad, and they're putting the cards under, like, a blacklight mm-hmm. to be able to see the residue. They found it. And inside this card is this creepy, dumb poem, and there's no signature, but then... Bomb squad guy, sprays it, up come the prints. Mm -hmm. They're back at the precinct, and there's no match from any database. Like, they put the prints through all of the databases that they have, including prisoners, city employees... Fire, police, all of that. yeah, that's right. And the bomb squad watch list. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, let's go visit him like one more time, you guys. But uh, there's nothing on there. So they're like, were there any applicants rejected for psych shit that might apply? Like maybe Mm. somebody applied that had to run their prints through, but they weren't actually hired because they're not... Well, boom, they've got him. William Lexner. He went to Queens College and he was rejected from the fire department six times. Narcissistic, paranoid, obsessed with fire. That's the trifecta. Mm
1: -hmm. Craig tells them, he's like, try to take him without incident. Like we don't. Yeah. Want shit to explode. Plan to take the bomb squad as precautions. They're at the Welton Apartments and they evacuate the entire fucking apartment building. Three floors it sounded like. Yeah. Stabler's dressed up like some kind of city employee. He's
0: like a certified check delivery guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's very convincing. Stabler's knocking on the door and he's like, you know, I've got this certified check here. Bah, 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 and the guy's like, oh, I don't I don't have a check coming. He's like, all
1: right, fine. It takes six to eight weeks for it to come back. So I don't know. I'm all gonna, right. S- thanks take... a lot. Yeah.
0: And so then Lexner comes out. He is an understudy for the lead in the Book of Mormon.
1: <laughs> OK. Yeah.
0: yeah. Like, he's not the first choice, but if somebody gets the flu... Bring him in. Yeah. Stabes takes him down, and Munch all but has a gun in the dude's fucking mouth. Stabes is like, Munch, chill. We've got him.
1: Yeah. That's but Munch like- has got emotions. <laughs> yeah. So throughout the precinct. Craig tells Munch they will not be able to make the case on just forensics. They need a confession.
0: Yeah. But they did find powder residue when the bomb squad did a sexy sweep of Lexner's apartment.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so Munch goes in and talks to Lexnor, and he... Recognizes him as the cop who handled Sarah's case.
0: Oh, before he goes in, though, they're like looking at Lexner through the one-way glass. <laughs> he's got his handcuffs on, and he's got his he bangs this. like swept over like early Bieber
1: bangs, and he like sweeps them out of his face. That's the thing. And that, he has like a tiny smile. That's what the thing that I was gonna text you to be like, find the thing that I thought was the funniest. Oh my god, it's that because <laughs> really? that's what like, I like, yeah. Like this we gotta do this. We gotta do this every week. What? Which part Figure was out. the funniest? Yeah. Okay.
0: Oh my god, I hate this guy. He's wildly unlikable. So Munch comes in the room and he's like, Will? And he's like, I don't see anyone else in here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. And I'm like, oh my god, you're fucking dorkier than Munch, this guy.
0: He says that rape is the worst crime because it ruins
1: a woman. Okay, so yeah, he does say that rape is the worst crime of all because guys will be with the women who have not been raped before the ones who have. And Munch tells him that it should not matter if you care. Well, Lexner saw Sarah differently after the rape. He says that she never smiled the same again. Right. This is just a guy watching her on fucking TV. Yeah. Okay. Munch tells him she's like, she was a good woman who did good deeds. Then Lexner asks Munch what she was like
0: munch stays on task even though lexner is trying to find out information about sarah from munch and munch redirects in a great way and shows us how creepy and delusional lexner is Mm. lexner got her the flowers to see her smile one last time Mm. because after the rape it had quote unquote changed her he wanted to see her smile one last time that moment when women open the box of flowers and he's like she didn't seem happy
1: when she signed off so he ordered the flowers she would have wanted and wrapped the box in a gold ribbon like she would have wanted mm -hmm. and left it in front of her building he was in the park and watched the five o'clock news on a portable tv yeah he watched her take the box to her apartment and watch for her smile before he flipped the switch
0: and he's like when she signed off she would say i'm sarah logan good night do you know what i'd always say back to her
1: yeah and munch is like um good night Sarah? And he's like, yeah, I did. (laughs) I did. I was like, (laughs) "You? Oh, my God. I have to pee. Executive producer Dick
0: Wolf. Yeah, I do too. So we got a real prime time twist with this episode. Mm. And Sarah was dealing with a lot. I found a lot of instances where news anchors were stalked, creeped out, threatened. One I found where somebody was even killed But today, we are going to focus on the twist of the episode, the moment that Stabler throws out the idea of a John Hinckley Jr. being the bomber. Mm. John Warnock Hinckley Jr. was born May 29th, 1955 in Ardmore, Oklahoma. He was the youngest of three children. His father, John Sr., who actually went by Jack, was the chairman and president of the Vanderbilt Energy Corporation. A fucking oil man. His mom, Joanne, was a homemaker. When he was four years old, his family moved to Dallas, Texas. Hinkley seemed like a normal kid. He excelled at school. He was pretty good at sports. He was actually pretty decent at basketball and football. But when he got to high school, things shifted a bit. He had no friends. He spent a huge amount of time in his room alone playing his guitar and listening to John Lennon and shit. Mm -hmm. Hinckley graduated high school and went off to Texas Tech University, but then he dropped out in 76 and instead chose to move out to LA to become a songwriter. Sure. He wrote home a lot asking for money. He also wrote home a lot about his invented girlfriend Lynn Collins. Mm, Sounds hot. (laughs) He would go on about the nice restaurants and trips they would take together. These letters were always for his parents, by the way. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I would be fucking annoyed if my spoiled ass dropout kid was fucking around on a vacation getting his dick sucked while i was footing the bill yeah right
1: i know it's yeah it'd be it's weird to ask for money
0: you funded our trip to tahoe not long after this when Hinckley was 21 he moved back in with his parents who by this time had moved to colorado that year the same year Martin Scorsese had released a little movie called Taxi Driver.
1: Ooh, I love that movie.
0: So this is just like a brief little thing that I found on Google. Suffering from insomnia, disturbed loner Travis Bickle, played by Robert De Niro, takes a job as a New York City cabbie, haunting the streets nightly, growing increasingly detached from reality as he dreams of cleaning up the filthy city. When Travis meets pretty campaign worker Betsy, played by Sybil Shepard, mm-hmm. he becomes obsessed with the idea of saving the world, first plotting to assassinate a presidential candidate then directing his attention toward rescuing 12 year old prostitute Iris played by Jodie Foster mm-hmm. Hinckley loved the movie He fucking loved that movie. All of these reports, they were like, oh, he was obsessed with it. He watched it 15 times. And I'm like, I've seen Tommy Boy at least 30 times. And that's not even in my top five. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He listened to the soundtrack all the time. After he saw it, he really started to emulate the anti-hero Travis Bickle. Mm -hmm. He dressed like Bickle, drank what he drank, kept a diary like him. He also developed an infatuation with the young actress from the movie, Jodie Foster. Mm -hmm. In 1978, Hinckley, he's 23 now, he went back to school at Texas Tech University He didn't do well. He didn't really go to class much. He didn't do much of anything. This is when Hinckley joins the National Socialist Party of America. Hmm. These guys were American Nazis. Their ideology was all about white supremacy, white nationalism, and anti-Semitism. So even though he'd never been violent, his behavior was reportedly erratic enough that it got him kicked out after 20 months with the group. Like, they destroyed Hmm. every account of being associated with him. Wow. So- There wasn't a crazy amount of detail. I think they just didn't like him. Yeah. In early 1980, Hinckley moved back in with his parents in Colorado. After a failed suicide attempt, he let them know that he was depressed and he started receiving psychiatric care with Dr. John Hopper. He got medical treatment, but more so the doctor felt that Hinckley needed boundaries and pressed his parents to try a tough love approach and to cut him off. In September of 1980, Hinckley dropped out of Texas Tech again, packed all his shit, and went to New Haven, Connecticut. He had found out that Jodie Foster was taking time off to go to college, and he followed her there. Like, he told his parents that he was going to be doing a writing course at Yale, Mm -hmm. but he was going to follow Jodie Foster there. He had an encounter with her there. Early on, he had stopped her to ask for directions. From that point on, Hinkley was convinced that they had a relationship. He continued to stalk Jody. He found her dorm and started hand-delivering letters and poems. He'd slipped them under her door. At one point, he got her phone number and called her twice. He recorded both sad and awkward conversations mm. can you find that online um yeah they have it transcribed too like i heard that uh, i read the the transcript of the phone calls and it was really like in the second one her friends are, it was like one in the morning or something and her friends are giggling in the background and she's like oh my god it's you i don't know you i can't be having conversations like this with people i don't know and yeah. the whole time he's like jody no please just listen he's very in line with that other stalker that i did that story on yeah that with the safety chick mm-hmm. just like if if I can convince her, if I can just get her to sit down and listen to me. She'll be like, she wrote, oh, I
1: see. Cool. Let's go. I'm in yeah. love with
0: you now. OK, I get it. So she was obviously weirded out by it and asked him to stop calling, but she didn't report it. Jody would later tell the police that she got thousands of letters every month from fans. So she didn't read what he was doing as dangerous. She also felt that she was playing things a little aloof because she wanted a normal college experience. So she ignored some pretty serious red flags. hmm. So we're going to go straight to December 31st, 1980. It's New Year's Eve. And John Hinckley spoke into a tape recorder. And here is the transcription of his recording. John Lennon is dead. The world is over. Forget it it's just going to be insanity if I even make it through the first few days. I still regret having to go on with 1981. I don't know why people want to live. John Lennon is dead. I still think about Jodie all the time. That's all I think about, really. That and John Lennon's death. They were sort of binded together. I hate New Haven with a mortal passion. I've been up there many times, not stalking her, really, but just looking after her. I was going to take her away for a while there, but I don't know. I'm so sick, I can't even do that. It'll be total suicide city. I mean, I couldn't care less. Jody's the only thing that matters now. Anything I might do in 1981 would solely be for Jody Foster's sake. My obsession is Jody Foster. I've gotta, I've gotta find her and talk to her some way in person or something. That's all I want her to know is that I love her. I don't want to hurt her. I think I'd rather just see her not, not on earth than being with other guys. I wouldn't want to stay here on earth without her. So now it's time to kill the president and make Jody fall in love with you. So John Hinckley goes to D.C., on March 30th, 1981, he sits down and writes this letter to Jody Foster. Dear Jody, there is a definite possibility that I will be killed in my attempt to get Reagan. It is for this very reason that I'm writing you this letter now. As you well know by now, I love you very much. The past seven months, I have left you dozens of poems, letters, and messages in the faint hope you would develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, I never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. Besides my shyness, I honestly did not wish to bother you. I know the many messages left at your door and in your mailbox were a nuisance, but I felt it was the most painless way for me to express my love to you. I feel very good about the fact you at least know my name and how I feel about you. And by hanging around your dormitory, I've come to realize that I'm the topic of more than just a little conversation, however full of ridicule it may be. At least you know that I'll always love you. Jody. I would abandon this idea of getting Reagan in a second if I could only win your heart and live out the rest of my life with you, whether it be in total obscurity or whatever. I will admit to you that the reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I just cannot wait any longer to impress you. I've got to do something now to make you understand in no uncertain terms that I am doing all of this for your sake. By sacrificing my freedom and possibly my life, I hope to change your mind about me. This letter is being written an hour before I leave for the Hilton Hotel. Jody. I'm asking you to please look into your heart and at least give me the chance with this historical deed to gain your respect and love. I love you forever. John Hankley. Oh, God. I know. Okay, so he goes to the Hilton Hotel now. He goes down to this area where all these other observers and news people are waiting. Ronald Reagan is there speaking at a conference. So this is where he's going to exit. So there's news cameras and hundreds of people have gathered to see him. 2.25 p.m., Ronald Reagan walks out the door with Press Secretary James Brady, Secret Service agent Timothy McCarthy, and a D.C. cop, Thomas Delahanty. As their men made their way to Reagan's limo, Hinckley fired six shots. Officer Thomas Delahanty was shot in the neck. Mm. Press Secretary James Brady was shot above his left eye and the bullet went into his brain. Did it kill him? No, nobody
1: died. Oh my God.
0: Fucking Secret Service agent Timothy McCarthy was shot in the stomach because he was slow motion diving in front of Reagan to block the president. He wouldn't have got Reagan at all except one of the bullets ricocheted off of Reagan's limo and went into Reagan's left armpit, breaking a rib and ending up in his lung. Whoa. Yeah. So Reagan was thrown into the limo and taken to George Washington University Hospital. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the shots were fired, Hinckley was tackled by pretty much everybody. Mm-hmm. And he was arrested, taken to the police station to be processed and interrogated. But like immediately the FBI was like, We'll we'll do it. Like we're gonna take over. Yeah. Hinckley was not remorseful at all. He had one focus. During questioning, he asked if what he did would be televised because he was quote sort of in a one-sided relationship with Jodie Foster.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Can you just imagine? I can't.
0: I know. So it was all he cared about. All he cared about was if Jodie Foster was going to see what he did. Mm -hmm. So the FBI is like, okay, I guess we have to call Jodie Foster now. August 25th, 1981... Hinckley was brought in on a 13-count indictment, all having to do with the assassination attempt. John Hinckley pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Okay, so some quick facts about the insanity plea. At the time, it was used in less than 2% of cases. Mm -hmm. It was a successful defense only 25% of the time Mm -hmm. that it was used. Yeah. Here's where Hinckley's lawyers felt they had an advantage. At the time, it wasn't only proving he committed the crime without reasonable doubt— that was obvious. The burden of proof to prove he was completely sane was on the shoulders of the prosecution, too. You know how it's the prosecution's responsibility to show without a reasonable doubt that somebody's guilty? Mm-hmm. That also applied to, like, if the insanity plea was used, they also had to prove that the person was completely sane. Mm-hmm. So all the defense had to do was, like, throw nuggets of doubt in
1: there. And already, like, just his shit with Jody Foster. And in an assassination attempts, like right, and, it was, really and it was and it was filmed. Of, like the yeah.
0: assassination, the assassination attempt was filmed. There is gobs of evidence. They have all, and they thought it was open and shut. Like they were going into this, like yeah, this is in the fucking bag. Like all of this is super fucking obvious. Yeah, but don't forget how rich his family is. Oh, that's right. John Hinckley comes from a wealthy family, so John Hinckley gets very good representation.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh God, isn't it such bullshit that people don't have yes. access
0: to? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So the lead defense attorney, Vincent Fuller, charismatic, big deal. Like they got the best of the best when they hired him. So before the trial started, in May of 1981, John Hinckley attempted suicide. Uh, He OD'd on Tylenol and Valium. And then again in November of 1981, he attempted suicide trying to hang himself in the window of his cell. Mm-hmm. This whole time he was like working with psychiatrists and psychologists and having all of this like just prep for this trial. But he struggled with his mental health a lot. Yeah. The trial began May fourth, nineteen eighty two. <gasps> there were three.
1: Ke- I was born the day before.
0: Oh my! That Darsh. doesn't apply. <laughs> Does it matter? <laughs> There were three key witnesses that wouldn't be called. Hinckley himself, President Ronald Reagan, and Press Secretary James Brady, who was still recovering from his brain injury. Dude, it was a year later, and he never fully recovered, by the way. Mm. Like, they could not get the bullet out of his brain. Even though the defense was coming hard, the prosecution was not fucking around. So they had lead U.S. attorney Roger Adelman, and he argued in his opening statement that the assassination attempt was premeditated for these reasons. He bought guns and ammo. He practiced target shooting at a range like he was training for something. Years before, he had told his parents he couldn't come home for Christmas because he had a business venture with a friend starting. And then he was going to go to New York with his imaginary girlfriend, Lynn Collins, when really he spent it alone at a Texas shooting range.
1: Duh. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Also, there was evidence that he had intended to shoot Jimmy Carter in October. The president had a speaking engagement at Opryland on October 9th, 1980. That same day, Hinckley was arrested at the Nashville International Airport for possession of three firearms and 50 rounds of ammo, and they found handcuffs in his bag. He was released after paying a fine of $62.50, and they didn't even process him. They like called the FBI and they're like, should we, do you want, you guys want to deal with this? And they're like. Now nah, you guys can just take care of it. A lot went unnoticed that in hindsight was like, oh, holy shit, this guy is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And then also all these letters that he wrote to Jodie Foster telling her about his plans. Mm-hmm. So the trial was really a parade of expert witnesses. Every time the defense called an expert witness to testify on the behalf of Hinckley's inability to appreciate the criminality of his conduct, the prosecution would call an expert witness of their own to refute that witness. Mm-hmm. So the jury's like, what the fuck? You know? Yeah. The prosecution would use their expert witnesses to argue he had control over his conduct and that he just wanted to be famous by committing such a high-profile crime. Mm-hmm. Where the prosecution was trying to use things like Hinckley's final letter to Jody Foster as proof of premeditation, the defense used it to show how truly detached from reality he was and therefore couldn't understand the implications and severity of his actions. So they're like using the same evidence with different spins. Mm-hmm. You know, so Hinkley's mom, Joanne, testified on his behalf and her testimony was so fucking heartbreaking. Something she said in her testimony was, quote, John just seemed to be going downhill, downhill, downhill and becoming more withdrawn, more and more antisocial, more depressed and so down on himself. And I'm like, I cannot imagine that as a mom, like mm-hmm. watching all of it as a mom. Mm-hmm. And then in hindsight, beating yourself up for your own choices, because that's right. that's what the parents did. Like,
1: They're always like, what did what did we do?
0: John Hinckley's dad testified in saying that cutting him off and giving him tough love on the instruction of his doctor was the wrong thing to do. And he said, looking back on that, I'm sure that it was the greatest mistake of my life. I am the cause of John's tragedy. I forced him out at a time when he simply couldn't cope. I wish to God that I could trade places with him right now. So when Hinckley's doctor, John Hopper, took the stand, he admitted that he had miscategorized Hinckley at the beginning of treating him. He kind of just thought he was a spoiled brat who needed to get shoved onto his feet. Mm. And looking back, and after further evaluation, he decided that Hinkley was suffering with major mental illness. And I'm like, mm. you're a little late. Yeah. As always, all of the source material is going to be available, and you can read all the shit that his like parents talked about and everything. It's really interesting shit. So Jodie Foster needs to come into this somehow again. In getting prepared for the trial, Hinkley threatened his lawyers, saying that he wouldn't cooperate with them in his own defense. Unless Jody testified. Oh my God. Her lawyers agreed to have her do that, but it was to be done pre recorded in a closed session with the judge, the lawyers, and Hinckley got to be there. He did? Yes. And he was very excited. Well, The VHS tape was played at the trial. When asked about the letters she received from Hinckley, she said they were, quote, love-type letters. One letter that they touched on was from March 6, 1981. It was a poem. Jodie Foster Love, Just Wait. I Will Rescue You Very Soon. Please cooperate, J.W.H. They asked her if she recognized this type of letter from anywhere, and she's like, yeah, in the movie Taxi Driver. Robert De Niro's character writes a note like that to her character, Iris. Mm -hmm. They asked if Jodie Foster knew Hinkley, hung out with him, welcomed his advances, anything, and she was like, no, dude. When asked how she would describe her relationship with him, she said, I don't have any relationship with John Hinkley. So Hinkley's sitting at the defense table in the room while she's being questioned, and he just chucks a fucking ballpoint pen at her and yells I'll get you Foster <gasps> Marshalls drag him out of the room after this
1: wait why is he he's like Jesus Christ Ugh, why'd he get pissed because he because already...
0: she said that she didn't
1: have a relationship with him yeah, but he already kn- knows that does he? He said, I have a one-sided relationship.
0: See, now that's where I would say, after like going through all this stuff, I think he would tell people what he felt was the same thing to say. Oh. Because there was this other psychiatrist too who he had talked to and she was like he admitted that he didn't think that this would make Jody love him and it's like really because all of his actions and everything that he said leading up to it would refute that mm-hmm. but he's like look I'm not crazy like I don't really believe that but then when you're alone and you're thinking and, you're, and maybe he you're did like, in those moments believe that Yeah. but I think in more moments he believed the contrary he's already fantasized about this moment about being in this room with her about what's going to be said and what she's going to say and what mm. you know how it's going to end and it ends with them Like being in love with each other. Yeah. And with her noticing him. And when she said, I have no relationship with him, I assume that that's what triggered him to be like, to flip, you know? So then they're watching this video of her testimony during the trial. And when it got to that part, Hinckley jumped up and ran out of the courtroom. What? And then the marshals chased him and like dragged him back in. Because he was really upset. Yeah. He was, re- he was really upset by her saying that. But his defense was just like, hey, this is good for us. It makes him look very unstable. Yeah. Psychiatrist Dr. William Carpenter testified that Hinkley suffered severely from schizophrenia. Carpenter was an expert in schizophrenia. Um, he saw Hinkley as having four major symptoms of mental illness. An incapacity to have an ordinary emotional arousal. Autistic retreat from reality. Depression, including suicide. Suicidal features and an inability to work or establish social bonds. He had developed false beliefs that were not shaken by evidence to the contrary, and he was basing many actions of his life on these things that weren't real. So in going through the events of the day of Hinckley's crime, Carpenter said that he was basing his actions on what he thought would result in uniting him with Jodie Foster. Mm -hmm. So the crime that he committed, the actions that he took became a part of his delusion. Yeah. So he had an incapacity to understand the real implications of what he was doing. Does that make sense? That argument? Yeah. Yeah. So there were two other doctors that Fuller put on the stand after Carpenter to corroborate what he had testified to. Dr. David Baer agreed with his diagnosis of schizophrenia and had physical evidence based on a CAT scan that was given to Hinckley after the shooting. Dr. Baer also said that the diagnosis of psychosis was accurate. So there was another doctor that they put on the stand that I forgot to put his name in here. He was a psychologist that gave Hinckley the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory test. He's Scored near the
1: quote, peak of abnormality. Just imagine getting that after taking a test and like, <laughs> peak of abnormality. You're at the highest of abnormal you can be.
0: Yeah. Well, this psychologist who gave the test to him testified that the chances of a person scoring what Hinkley did not having a mental illness would be one in a million. Mm. So they're like How much more evidence Can we have That this guy Has mental illness Right You know So for every defense Expert they had The prosecution's like Yeah we have an expert too mm-hmm. So Dr. Park Dietz Testified for the prosecution And presented the diagnosis From the government's Psychiatric team He said that Hinckley suffered From various Personality disorders But was not psychotic Or insane Instead Hinckley was a Bored Spoiled Lazy Manipulative Rich kid um, He said that Quote Mr. Hinckley's history is clearly indicative of a person who did not function in a usual reasonable manner however there is no evidence that he was so impaired that he could not appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct or conform his conduct to the requirements of the law he was saying like all of these choices he made were thought out decisions that Hinckley imitating Travis Bickle would be the same as you looking up to a rock star he wasn't absorbing his identity he just really admired him he just really liked him as a character he tried to say that Hinckley didn't have an obsession with Jodie Foster but was infatuated the way any person would be infatuated with a celebrity they addressed the things that he wrote and he was like well those were fiction and they're not that useful in determining his mental state Mm -hmm. which that's all bullshit
1: yeah I feel like when I saw Far and Away with Tom Cruise I could have easily slipped into (laughs) I felt that as a kid like a 12 year old I was like if I I could just tip right over into insanity. Oh, I'm so glad you didn't. And I, Tom Cruise <laughs> is the worst. No, I know. But in Far and Away, it was, he was great. Okay. I kind of felt that same way about Channing Tatum. And I was like, I can't go through this again. Oh, my God. Remember? <laughs> when we saw Magic Mike, Gabe... I lost my mind. Like, I slipped, I slipped into a thing where I was angry for like three days because I could was... never fuck him. She was so mad. I was just like irrationally angry for like three whole days. Mm-hmm. because i know i knew that i could never have sex with him and it like really remember that yeah and, and i was like this sucks that i feel this way and i don't like it yeah that it was like that in tom Cruise where i'm like i could just see myself just slipping down so this trial lasted for two
0: months the expert witnesses cost two million dollars between the defense and the prosecution like who's that's paying, a fuckload of money who's paying for it are oh okay i mean hinckley's family is paying for his defense so cool. john hinckley jr was found not guilty by reason of insanity people were fucking pissed he didn't get to go home or anything but like the whole country was fucking pissed it shook the nation so much that there was a ton of reform done in regards to the insanity defense like it changed everything as far as the insanity defense is now the way it is used now mm. so you can't even use that defense in utah idaho montana or kansas anymore two-thirds of u.s states shifted the burden of proof of insanity to be on the defense mm-hmm. instead of on the prosecution. And eight states created a whole separate verdict of guilty but mentally ill. Yeah, John Hinckley was sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington. He didn't have a sentence to serve. I read something that said, quote, he is entitled to his freedom once it is proven that he is no longer a threat because of his mental illness to himself or others. Mm-hmm. So he was able to apply to be reviewed for release every six months. Okay. So he got put there in 1982 in 1987 Hinkley requested a visit with his family like he was able to he had some freedoms like he he earned a lot of freedoms in this time in 1987 Hinkley requested a visit with his family but then investigators found 57 photos of Jodie Foster in his room and they locked Hinkley down for like a decade Yeah, And then in 2003, Hinckley earned unsupervised visits with his parents. Like he had like a little job and he took care of cats and he did all this stuff where he was actively working on his mental health. He earned unsupervised visits with his parents in 2003. Mm -hmm. In 2016, Judge Paul Friedman released John Hinckley stating that he no longer posed a serious risk to himself or others. He was released into the care of his 90 year old mother. Mm -hmm. in 2018 a judge ruled he could live on his own but his restrictions included living within 75 miles of williamsburg continuing mental health care with professionals he's not allowed to knowingly travel anywhere where current or former presidents are living or visiting and he may not by any means contact jody foster or any of the men that he shot in march of 1981 okay so these are just like my afterthoughts Mm -hmm. like the more shit i read the more i was convinced that he was given the appropriate sentence Mm -hmm. do i think that he is cured or his impulses are in remission that I can't say but I don't think that he's well by any means Mm -hmm. I think there are way too many people who should be getting mental health assistance in the prison system who are just being housed there
1: right His
0: money afforded him this, which I don't know that like the amount of public outrage in his verdict just seemed so indicative of the uninformed mob mentality that we have. Like maybe the people who heard months of testimony made the right decision for him and based it on that instead of summaries in the newspaper. You know what I mean? Like everybody in the country is reading this. It was this outrage and this guy isn't being locked away forever you know but it's just like also at the time like look at how much we've learned about mental illness since then mm-hmm. you know so there's a misunderstanding of mental illness and being uninformed that's like a fucking toxic combination you know right. what i mean yeah and it was this outrage that got the laws changed in how the insanity defense is brought or if it can even be brought
1: mm-hmm.
0: i don't 100 agree with i don't 100 agree with how the government does things you
1: <laughs> i think you're doing a good job
0: oh <laughs> Um, from day one, cool rate and review us on apple podcast give us five stars follow us on instagram twitter facebook at pod. check out our website all of our source materials on there other shit svupod.com and join our facebook group
1: yeah
0: all right let's go love you bye, bye, bye. the bomb squad dude <laughs> that they continue ja to- bombs <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i know
0: Jody later told the police that she got thousands of letters every month from Franz. <laughs> France France <laughs> oh my god I love that show France <laughs> <laughs> Dicks
1: and taters God uh, be nice to me today I am why can't I say anything ever God <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even look at you because I was gonna laugh that's why I was like